Good morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians? Philippians chapter 3. Would you please stand if you're able? Here's the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it's actually safe for you. Look out. Beware of the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, oh, I have more. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace upon our lives. As we are singing this last hymn, cause your Holy Spirit to move upon us, in us, through us, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, the Son. Help us. Lord, we all here stand as beggars. We need your help. I need your help in preaching. And the congregation, your sheep need help in listening. We all are being held accountable. I'm responsible in relation to preaching. And my beloved brothers and sisters here have responsibility in listening. So help us, Lord. We pray that you would be glorified. Guard my mouth. Enable us to delight in you. We are hungry. We long to be fed by you, Lord. So we know that you are the most wonderful, the most gracious shepherd. So feed us. Give us the honey that we need. We praise you. We pray for other churches in Salem. We pray they'll be moving upon your people. Draw your people to the cross. Help our brothers and sisters here in Salem to be faithful to you, to rejoice in you. Let your kingdom come. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. What makes a great work of art? What makes a painting? A beautiful painting. You think about the great names. Vincent van Gogh. Picasso. Rembrandt, Michelangelo, what made their paintings great work of art? And 
for those who know about art, they will say contrast. The wisdom in contrasting colors and shapes. The great minds, they say that contrast is everything when you're painting. So, as you think about the beautiful paintings, you see the contrast of colors and shapes. And that's exactly what makes those paintings beautiful. Great work of art. The skill in contrasting the colors. And as we think about the Bible as the greatest work of art, and as if you're looking at the Bible as a beautiful painting, we see this painting of God's kingdom coming and rescuing His people, and as, a, as the most beautiful work of art, therefore, the Bible is also filled with contrasts. The atro- atrociousness of sin is contrasted with the majesty of grace. The wages of sin, which is death, is contrasted with the gift of life. The scandal of the cross is contrasted with the boasting of all Christians on the cross. We also behold contrasting language. The Bible uses sometimes language that's very gentle and loving and soft. And right at the same paragraph, we have language that's harsh and hard. Paul, as a, as a very skillful master painter, also his, his letters are filled with contrasts. So, for example, he go to Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, you children of wrath. Oh, but God in His mercy now has adopted us. Put to death. Put off these old garments. Colossians chapter 3. Put on these new garments in Christ. Contrast. And as we come to Philippians, one of Paul's greatest work of art Therefore, we also see a lot of contrasts. And throughout the letter, chapter 2, the contrast, he's contrasting that in the church, those who have a selfish tendency, selfishness, and he contrasts with the self-giving attitude of Christ and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Contrast. And as we come to chapter 3, the contrast becomes very clear. As you're reading, there is this contrast of who the false teachers are, who these people who profess to be Christians are, but they are not, and the true Christians. That's what Philippians chapter 3 emphasizes clearly. You have this clear contrast here between the false Christians, those who profess, but they, don't, they do not possess, and those who truly possess the true faith. So, Philippians chapter 3, that's where we are. I'm outlining this morning's sermon just two parts. Who they truly are, verse 2, and who we truly are, verse 3. And chapter 3 of Philippians is actually one of the most powerful, one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible. Here we see Paul's major engines. Think about Paul moving. As he was always moving around, and his major engines are right here. The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of union with Christ, in Christ, 
the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's all here. The doctrine of example, imitating Christ. It's all here in chapter 3 of Philippians. So let's move to verse 1. And we saw that some Sundays ago, that was just before Christmas, that was the last time we were in Philippians. And we, we saw verse 1, we spent a lot of time looking at the command to rejoice in the Lord. So look at verse 1, it says, Finally, my brothers, and the finally here does not mean that he's coming towards the end of the letter. That's very important. This, this Greek word here actually would be better translated as, Well then, therefore, because he's not bringing to conclusion the letter, He's moving, he's transitioning to a different subject. Okay? So you hear all sorts of jokes, how preachers say, finally, and they keep preaching for... But that's not what's taking place here at all. The word would be better translated as, furthermore, well then. And then he says, rejoice. And we saw that Paul used the, this command to rejoice throughout the, the book of Philippians as... Binding together this letter. So there are major areas in Philippians where Paul calls to rejoice. And it is an aspect of his transitioning to another subject. So, for example, chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 4. Paul commands, rejoice in the Lord. And then he transitions to a different subject. So that's very important. And as we think about the letter as a farewell discourse, and that was very common in farewell discourse, you add this rejoice as a transition. So I'm not going to spend much time here because we already spent a whole sermon. But notice he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's actually safe for you. And the question here is, what is the same things that Paul is talking about? Is he referring to the call to rejoice? Or is he referring to what's coming in the letter? We have scholars arguing, oh no, he's referring to the call to rejoice. And others will say, no, he's referring to what's coming. And I would say both. Because both keep repeating throughout the letter. But you see, there is one thing very important here. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is basically the repetition of the same basic truth of the Christian life. Isn't that true? The ABCs. That's all we need over and over again. There is never a time in the life of the Christian that he can say, I'm done with the cross. I'm done with the crucified Jesus. That was good for in the beginning, but now I'm advancing. There is never a time. The word that he used here as a safe, the ESV translates, safe for you. It's actually a word that it's avoiding instability. To avoid to be overthrown. So that's why it's so important to keep repeating the same basic truths of the gospel. Keeps us stable. We are a same things church. Keep the same gospel. 
playing the same key. Because that's what the gospel is all about. Christ Jesus, Him crucified. We finding our delight in Him. Being reminded of the same foundational truth of the gospel is necessary. So that's why we keep repeating the importance of unity in the church, the importance of love, holy living, humility. Because once we stop, once we stop repeating, we are opening the church to instability, to be overthrown. Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Do this, what? In remembrance, to bring to mind, to act upon the death of Christ. So much of marital counseling is what? Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Wives, submit your husband. Much of marital counseling is basically going to the gospel. Christ saved you and made you a slave of Him. You're a slave of Jesus. Your target is to serve. Your kingdom come. Right? Isn't that truth? So much of problems in the church and we need to counsel. And what is that we bring? The gospel. That's why the, the Christian life, is, is, our society, it's all about the new thing. So as soon as you get a, a, a doctor degree, you've got to come up with new papers. You've got to come up with something new. We need something new. Just like the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. They would gather together to hear something new. I was longing for something new. And the Christian is the opposite. Is Please tell me the old, old story. That gospel story. So that's what we see here. The repetition of the same truth. And, and, and as we go through Philippians, we are right in the middle of Philippians. And we see that Paul keeps repeating the same subjects by the repetition of the same words. So we see how Paul's mind is working and the importance of repetition in our lives. So I really don't care if you learn something new when I'm preaching. I really don't care if you learn something new. My prayer is that you as a Christian will be grounded in the basic truth of the gospel. Thank you for reminding me of the death of Christ, that I'm a slave of Jesus, the importance of the local church in my life. So, let's move on to verse 2. Suddenly, look out for the dogs. Whoa, Paul, I was not expecting that. Suddenly, you have this violent storm that takes over the ladder. Here's Paul talking about Epaphroditus and Timothy and Jesus and calling the church to rejoice. And suddenly, look out for the dogs, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Suddenly, the ladder of joy becomes the ladder of jarring. What's going on, Paul? We can basically see Paul as he's writing. Look at the verses earlier. Oh, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, for I have no one like him. 
You know Timothy, my son, how faithful he is. You can see just Paul's smile as he's thinking, writing about Timothy, and then he moves to Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. We can picture Paul with this huge smile as he's writing about his brothers whom he loves so much, so much affection. We were overwhelmed by Paul's affection as he was writing about his brothers. Here's Paul, the great apostle, and yet he says how much he needs these brothers. How much he loves these brothers. We can just picture Paul's smile and suddenly, as we move to verse 2, you can see just his veins popping. Here's Paul, angry. Beware of the dogs, the evildoers. There's a, uh, and we see the ardency of Paul with the repetition. Look out! Look out! Look out! His ardency, his fervor here. And the question is, who are these people that is taking Paul to another level of emotion? The three descriptions refer to the same group, and they are known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. The Judaizers, they were those people who were Jews and then they professed to become Christians, but they would insist that the Gentile Christians had to go back to the law of Moses. So these Judaizers, they were Jewish people who became Christians, professed to become Christians, and then they would go after Paul, just like the cuckoo bird, finding a different nest. And they would go after Paul's churches right after Paul left and say, yeah, yeah, he taught part of the gospel, but there is something that Paul is missing here. It's the keeping of the law of our great father Moses. So we see that in Acts 15. Acts 15, that's the first church council. And we read, but some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, look at that, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And circumcision is just the first step to the whole law. You cannot be saved. Oh, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, can you just imagine the debate between these people? Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So these men here, they professed to be Christians. They were in Christian churches, the Christian fellowship. Oh, if you ask them if they believe in Christ, of course you believe in Christ. They believe in salvation by faith alone, of course we do. Grace alone, yes. But there's something that we need to add here. That's what they would be teaching. They would be adding the abominable addition. Adding to the work of Christ. And we see that today also. That, that would be wonderful if that had ceased in the first century. But we still have this type of people who keep adding to the work of Christ. The Roman Catholics. It's a great example. But even within the evangelical community, you have those who, oh, you guys are using the ESV in this church. You need to be saved. 
King James Version is the only, only true Bible. And if you don't have the King James Version, you're not saved. Oh, you're baptized. Or you're not baptized in our denomination. That means that you're not saved. So you have some denominations where you have to be baptized in their denomination to be saved. They question your salvation, not membership in a church, but salvation on the grounds of baptism. I remember being with, visiting an old man in the hospital. He was about to die. And his greatest fear was that he was not going to heaven because he did not speak in tongues. And sadly, the church where he was from taught that unless you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking tongues, you are not saved. So we see this today. And the question is, why would Christians in the first century be attracted to this teaching? Right? Why would they be attracted to go back to the, to the Jewish law when Christ came? And I agree with some scholars that we are not certain, but probably is because by joining, by looking like Jews, they would, have a, they would have a break on persecution. Because the Jewish religion was tolerated in the Roman Empire. So, by looking like more and more like the Jews, that meant less and less persecution. And we see that happening, especially in some of the churches in Revelation that they address. But here's Paul's words. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And you can feel this harshness, this thirdness, severity in Paul's language. He sounds like a prophet of the Old Testament, right? Doesn't he sound like Jeremiah? Yes. And much of Philippians 2 of chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, is actually an exposition, an application of Jeremiah chapter 9. Or he sounds like John the Baptist, the last of the prophets in the Old Covenant. What did John the Baptist tell his opponents, the opponents of the Gospel? You brood of vipers! Right? So you see the similarity here. And then some people say, Oh, but I don't like that. I, I prefer Jesus. I don't like Paul's words. I like the red letters in the Bible. Right? I like Jesus. How He was always so gentle and so soft. How He always spoke with loving words. Never used this tone of harshness. So to these people, we need to remind them that Jesus, first of all, is the fulfillment of the prophetic office. He's the perfect prophet. And then remind these people that they need to read their Bibles. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Or he calls them blind leaders of the blind, children of the devil. So, Paul is just following after his master and directing in a very accurate way what these men truly are. And there is a time to use strong language. 
No profanity. There is no time for profanity. Cussing, swearing. And that's what we see happening in many Christian circles, especially in Reformed circles. Some pastors are trying to be cool and using profanity to get attention. Shame on them. Using profanity. Swearing to get attention. But there is a time to use strong sarcasm, strong language to the enemies of Christ. You look at the church history. It's full of men who use strong irony, strong sarcasm. Tertullian, Athanasius. The champion, of course, is Martin Luther. Remember, the Pope was supposed to be called the Most Holy Father. And he would direct the Pope as the most hellish father. <laughs> John Calvin, Spurgeon. So, and as we come to Philippians chapter 3, this is not a simple name calling, insulting for the sake of insulting. Paul is not being sensational in order to show off or get popularity. Actually, Paul's words, pay attention here, Paul's words are carefully chosen in order to brilliantly ironically and sarcastically reveal the true identity of those false teachers. And what he does here is he gets the three aspects that these false teachers would be promoting as their identity, and actually he plays with that. He does the inverse. The description of the false teachers are all tied together by alliteration. Alliteration. In the Greek we can see that because the three terms that Paul uses for these false teachers all begin with the letter kappa. It's the K. So you have kunas, that's dogs, kako, ergatas, evildoers, katatome, the mutilators. So one way of, if you're translating that into English and you want to capture this alliteration, it would be, beware of the canines, or beware of the curse. Beware of the criminals and beware of the cutters. That's one way of translating to English and keeping the, the sea how Paul is using here. So the first one is look out. Beware of the dogs. And we have a hard time with that. And that's the problem is when we try to interpret the Bible through the lenses of our society. And our culture, our society, is a society that idolizes dogs. People spend more money with dogs than with children. So they come here and, what's going on? Beware of the dogs. These are no pinchers. These are no poodles. Chihuahuas. That's not what Paul is talking about here. First century, there were no dog lovers. There was no bumper sticker about dogs, man's best friend. Actually, dogs were scavengers, unclean animals, weight garbage, carcasses. They carried disease and they were dangerous. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says... Of all the domesticated animals, there is a particular revulsion for the dog who alone is willing to eat human corpses. A fact that is, it is reprehensible to every human 
and exploited uniquely by the book of Kings as a curse that comes upon evil dynasties or kings. Another scholar says, Dogs denote the wild, vicious, homeless animals that roam these streets and attack passers-by. And if you've ever been to a poor place, poor countries, you know what that means. So, for example, coming from Brazil, you have this pack of wild beasts wandering, roaming through the streets. And man, when you see them, you've got to run. Or you better have rocks or a stick with you. Because they truly come and they attack you. Gross. Used figuratively, it was always a term of reproach. Jesus used it in reference to opponents of God's truth, Matthew 7, 6. And Jews often use it similarly of Gentiles. So Paul turns the figure back upon the Judaizing teachers and castigates them with the very term that they probably use of others. So what they were doing probably was going to the churches and say, Yes, that's wonderful that Paul began the gospel with you, but he has not finished. You see, Gentiles are just like dogs. You need to keep the food laws. You need to know what you're eating in order to be clean before God. So there is an aspect of teaching them to keep the law of Moses. Especially those dietary laws that would create a a boundary between God's people and the Gentiles. That's why the Gentiles were called what? Dogs. Filthy animals. And now Paul turns the table and he says what? No, 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 no. Actually, they are the dogs. They are the filthy beasts. They need to be aware of and avoid them. So Paul paints the true picture of who they are. They are actually outside God's people. The dogs outside the city gates eating the filthy garbage. Eating their own vomit. And what is their own vomit? Their self-righteousness. That's the garbage that these dogs are eating. That's Paul's language here. That's how he's painting them. And then he calls them also evildoers. There was a very philosophical and wise question. Who let the dogs out? That's for you, Jesse. And here is Satan. Satan. They're Satan's dogs. They're Satan's workers. The Jews boasted, the Jewish people boasted in glory the fact that they did the works of the law, the works of righteousness. Actually, Paul calls them workers of evil. They labor, they battle very hard, but not for that which is good and proper and righteous. The picture here is that they are Satan's missionaries. Sent by the devil to inflict harm upon the church. Do you remember what Jesus talked about the Pharisees? That they would travel, travel across sea and land to make disciples who would become what? To Isis, children of the devil. As them. So that's the picture here. They are soldiers of the kingdom of darkness. And Paul seems to be applying here Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 16, the psalmist, you remember, as he's suffering, he says, for dogs, and he's referring to the opponents, his opponents, 
for dogs encircle me, a company of evildoers encompass me. And if you remember, Jesus applies that psalm to himself, and now Paul is applying that psalm to the church, because the church is in Christ. Therefore, they're enemies, enemies of Christ. And now the last one, Paul says, Beware! Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And if you know boxing, you know about jabbing, jabbing, and then the uppercut. And here's the uppercut. Right in the jaw. That's pretty heavy how Paul addresses them here. And he explains the words. The King James Version gets the gets displayed with the words by translating as concision. Concision. I think the NEASB misses the sarcasm by translating the false circumcision. You have a NEASB, it says false circumcision. What for me is so interesting because some people, they boast about the NASB, how it's so literal, the translation. That's the translation you must have, the most literal one. And actually, there is no false in the Greek text. (laughs) What Paul is doing is playing with words here. The Greek word for circumcision is peritome. Paul used katatome. That was a rare word used for laceration, to cut asunder, chop off into parts. It's fascinating that this, the, the verb form of katatome appears in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that, the, denoting the pagan practice of cutting the flesh for religious purpose. So if you remember between Elijah and the priests of Baal, Baal, and they're cutting themselves, that's exactly the Greek word that's used. So one scholar says, Circumcision of the flesh has become pagan lacerations, like those of the prophets of Baal. Circumcision, their greatest source of pride, is interpreted by the Apostle Paul as a sure sign that they have no part in God's people at all. Paul had no mercy. He had no mercy to those who opposed the gospel. That's very important. If you read Galatians chapter 5, he goes even harder on them because in Galatians, they, they have already invaded the church. In relation to Philippians, Paul, he can smell. I can smell that they're coming to you. But in Galatians, they're already right there. So Paul is harsher, stronger. And he tells them, actually, they should go ahead and castrate themselves. Paul, what are you talking about? Oh, yes. If you're going to keep something of the law, you need to keep the whole law. There's no, oh, I just want to keep this part of the law. Oh, no, 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 the law is a package. If you're going to keep one thing, you're going to keep the whole thing, and you're going to bear the whole curse of the law. Paul has no mercy towards them because they destroyed the mercy of the gospel. By adding works to the gospel, they nullify the gospel. They're mutilators. They're mutilating the souls of people by mutilating the grace of the gospel. And Paul implies here, as they're cutting a part of their body, there is a much greater cutting happening. Is that the cutting from their 
themselves from the body of Christ. These people do not belong to God. They have been perverting the grace of the gospel. So that's a warning for all of us. All of us. Satan and the remaining sin hate the grace of God. Right? Oh, there will always be a stand against grace. I know some dear friends of mine who were strong Christians, at least I thought. Suddenly, they invite us for dinner and they want to convert us to Judaism. Oh, no, no, yes, yeah, but we need to go back to the law. Those are our roots. Oh, that has been happening so much. Adding to the gospel. Adding to the gospel. How about today? Beware. Beware. Gospel coalition. Together for the gospel. Adding the critical race theory to the gospel. The death of Christ is not enough to unite black and whites. There is much more that we need to do. Adding to the work of Christ. Beware. And there is a holy harshness that's part of God's character in order to paint the true picture of who the false teachers are. We can never paint what is evil and ugly with a beautiful picture, right? No. You've got to show what they truly are. And that's what he's doing right here. So Paul says, beware. Watch out for the dogs. The evildoers. The cutters. Mutilators. And we need to beware of our own hearts. We all here, we all here had some sort of emotions. When you were reading, when you were listening about Paul's affection towards Epaphroditus and Timothy, right? Some people were very excited. And they loved the kind and gentle and soft words. And then when we come to parts of the Bible like this, they... they they kind of embarrassed. I don't, I don't like this language. I wish that was not in the Bible. Hmm. I like the gentle words. I'm not a very confrontational person. Oh, on the other hand, there are people when you're reading those passages about Paul's affection towards Timothy, his love towards Epaphroditus, they were uncomfortable. Oh, too soft. And when I was reading about beware of the dogs, the evildoers, you got excited, yes. Both groups, both groups have a defective affection towards the Word of God. We must embrace the whole Bible, the whole scope of Scriptures, the holy harshness and the holy gentleness that the Bible brings to us. Amen? That's very important. That's very important. 
Once we start, I, I don't like the hard words of the Bible. You're saying that you know better than God. You're wiser than God. That's why the exposition of the Scriptures is so important. Because the exposition of the Scriptures actually exposes us to who God is. So, and that's a warning for the whole church. Notice that Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul does not say, here, this is for the elders and pastors of the church. No, 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 that's for the whole church. All the members have the duty and responsibility to be watching out, being aware of false teachers. So, for example, in Romans 16, 17, Paul says, and that's to the whole church, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then what does he say? What does he command them? Avoid them. Avoid them. Because these people are just like ferocious, heinous dogs that they want to eat your soul, rob your joy from Christ. So avoid them. And now the contrast, Paul moves. Look at the 4 in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So that four is very important. Paul is giving the reason why he's speaking with that strong language. Because those people, they're perverting who Christ is. By saying that the work of Christ is not enough. And now, you need to add a little bit more here. They are perverting Christ Himself. And if you pervert Christ, you pervert the church. A perversion of the identity of Christ is a perversion in the identity of the church. So Paul fights them by now giving the contrast of who they are in Christ. And it's very beautiful how Paul does here, because just like he used three terms to describe the false people, now he gives three terms for the true people of God. So the true people of God, they are marked by service or worship, boasting or glory, and no fleshly confidence. So Paul says, for we are the circumcision. And that's amazing. That's why they want to kill Paul. Why do you think the Jewish leaders want to kill Paul? Here is one of the major reasons. That's why Paul want to kill the Christians. How can you be adding these Gentiles into our group and saying that they are now Abraham's seed? And Paul is getting their nerve system. And he's saying, actually, we, we, Paul the Jew, and those Gentile Roman citizens in Philippi, who had nothing to do with the law of Moses, he says, we are the circumcision. They are the katatome. We are the peritome. Is playing here. And circumcision is a very important subject here. You can see by the play there that he does, the, those who mutilate the flesh, now in verse 3, and then in verse 5, that's the first, that's his first 
pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day. So it's very important to the development of Philippians chapter 3. It's a subject that's very important throughout the scriptures. But we do not talk about that. We are very proper. We are more proper than God Himself. Who are we to talk about circumcision? Propriety. Can you believe that God spoke about these things? Actually commanded these things under the Abrahamic covenant? We avoid talking about this. The only time you hear about this is when couples are about to have a baby boy. So they need to talk about whether or not they're going to do that. What Paul calls the mutilation of the flesh. <laughs> we don't see any church. Have you ever seen gracious circumcision community? The true circumcised community. Oh, can you imagine starting a church in Jerusalem with this name? Sheesh. But actually, the, we saw in Acts 15 that the first, the first church council, the first church council was why? Because of this issue. And it's deeply connected to the law. Because the circumcision is the first step into embracing the whole Mosaic law. And we know as the revelation develops that the physical circumcision was a type of a greater spiritual circumcision that was to come. And it's actually very profound, this subject. It's very profound, theologically speaking. You think about what circumcision is, a surgical procedure in a male's private area. His reproductive organ in which a part of the organ is removed. According to the law of Moses, that has to be done on the eighth day. There's all theological aspects here. The first time we hear about this command is in Genesis 17. But you've got to understand that that was not new. It's not like God commands Abraham to circumcise and he has no idea what that is. Oh, you need to explain to me what that is. No, that took place. That was happening with the peoples around them. Read Jeremiah 9, and you're going to see that there are other nations that practice that. And the most important for us to understand is Egypt. Egypt. Especially because as we think about the Torah, the first five books, it's Moses writing to a people who just left where? Egypt. In Egypt, circumcision was primarily to young men who were going to become priests in the kingdom of of Pharaoh. Huh. So that was deeply connected to priesthood and the removal of your fertility part in order to please fertility gods. I don't have the time to develop, but I just want to quickly, quickly, briefly mention a few things about circumcision. First of all, Genesis 17 comes after what? Good. And, and, and Genesis 16 comes after what? Genesis 15. That's very important. Because Genesis 15 through 17, we have the Abrahamic covenant. Does anybody remember what takes place in, in, in Genesis 15?
I'll help you. There were some animals. Things got dark. Abraham had to cut the animals. Same word, to cut the animals. And he, God passes through those cut animals. And He says, it's, God is saying, if I break my covenant, let me be cut off. Genesis 17, now is Abraham's responsibility. People sometimes talk about the Abrahamic covenant as if it had no responsibility towards man. No, no, no. It's an unconditional covenant. No. All the covenants in the Bible are conditional and unconditional. All the covenants in the Bible. There's conditionality with men in obeying God. And now it's Abraham, the other side of the, the other partner of the covenant, to cut something. The cutting off of the flesh represents the cutting off of membership from God's people. But then he said, but why there? Genesis 3.15, you have the promise of a seed. The Eve would have a seed, and the seed would be a male who would crush the serpent's head. That's why you have so many genealogies throughout the Old Testament. Why? Because we are tracing back the seed. The seed promise throughout the Old Testament. So circumcision captures that hope in a physical sign. That's why the sign was circumcision and not just a tattoo or a bizarre hairstyle. Because it was about the promise of a descendant. Hence the sign was attached to the instrument of procreation. That also seems to be why only half the population, the men, received the sign. Because the sign was never about delineating who was in and who was out, but about what the promise was. And what was the promise? But about a new Adam who would come to conquer. The organ is important. It's hidden from the public. And that points to another organ that's hidden from the public. And that's the heart. It reminds God's people of how God created His people. From nothing. Romans chapter 4. Sarah unable. Abraham pretty old. And how that baby came about would remind them of the impossibility. God, the God of the impossible. Why the eighth day? I have heard all sorts of silly reasons, medical reasons. No, 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 no. The eighth day derives its significance from the account of creation, where God made the world in six days, rest on the seventh. Since the seventh day is indefinite, the eighth day is the beginning of a new creation. That's why Jesus is raised would be on the eighth day. It's a new creation. Read the account of Noah. There is a new creation with the eighth day. Uh, and fits with the new creation image, imagery connected with Abraham as a new Adam. And then you think about the priesthood, especially with Israel coming out of Egypt and understanding that circumcision was the mark of priests. And now God calls a people, a nation, to be a nation of what? Of priests. That's why every male must be. And from early age. 
The phrase holy nation also means consecrated to God or belonging to God. And would complement the meaning of a kingdom of priests. Because they are a kingdom of priests, circumcision is the appropriate sign for the people of Israel. For it will remind every male Israelite that he is a priest, especially consecrated to Yahweh in his service. So, we have many other things. But if you compare, especially the flesh circumcision with the heart circumcision, you see some very important similarities and contrasts. Source of life, a private organ. It's performed by someone else. The eighth day, the baby could not do that, so he needs someone else. It points to the Holy Spirit who would do that deeper surgery in our hearts. So, when Paul says, for we are the circumcision, he's saying, we are Abraham's. You need to do anything else. Christ did all. And now you can picture as the drama, the drama of Scriptures are moving and we find ourselves within family, in the family of Abraham here. It's beautiful what Paul is doing. There is no need for the knife of Moses when the sword of the Spirit has performed the surgery that we needed. And then Paul says, he just, let me go back here. <laughs> got scared. <laughs> You're done. Look at verse 3. And you see how it develops here because he says, who, the, the ESV says, who worship by the Spirit. But the, the Greek word there, latreo, is used in the Greek version for service of priests. Ah, the true circumcision causing the church now to be a kingdom of priests who serve God. By the Spirit. This amazing privilege, the proud privilege of ancient Israel to love and serve God from the heart has now been transferred to the new Israel. And that's why Luke quoted here, 1 Peter 2.9, Revelation 1.6, the church is the kingdom of priests. So there's so much here, we just don't have time to develop that, but it's beautiful. The whole language of a new, a better circumcision, the Spirit coming, serving as priests, boasting in God. Go read Jeremiah 9. It's all the promise. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Paul is picturing us all in the fulfillment here of God's promises. And then he also says, who glory in Christ. Look at that. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the great work of the Holy Spirit. The great work of the Holy Spirit is to do what? Point to Jesus. Point us to Christ. Was Jesus who said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit and He will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's beautiful. That's why we saw in chapter 2, the dance of the Trinity. So who are we? We are the true descendants of Abraham in Christ who serve. What is a Christian? Who is the church? A people who serve. It's a kingdom of priests. What is the duty of the priest? But you serve. So if you have Christians who are not serving the church of Christ, huh? you are failing in your call. So you need to examine if that's really 
that you received that call. Because that the church is formed by the Spirit of God, a kingdom of priests who now worship, serve God, and also glory in Christ Jesus. What is a Christian? The one who glories, who boasts in Christ Jesus. No boasting, no glory in anything that I did, do, had, but it's all in Christ. So if you have a person who does not glory in Christ, who does not boast in Christ, you have serious questions about salvation of that person. Because that's what Paul says, we boast in Christ. We glory in Christ. We feast in Christ. That's why we're singing, I will glory in my Redeemer. I will glory in my Redeemer. That's what Christians do. That's what we have been doing all morning. Boasting Christ. Glorying Christ. Celebrating Him. Why? Because He bought us. Because once we were those dogs, filthy creatures, outside the gates, eating the garbage of our own self-righteousness, but when the grace of God appeared, ha, ha, that beautiful grace that transformed dogs into priests to serve this wonderful God. That's why we glory in Christ. We have this contrast. Those who are priests now become dogs. And those who are dogs in Christ now become what? Priests to serve Him. And He empowers us. He gives us His Holy Spirit to be watching out. Beware. Beware of the dogs. Let us never think that we are so safe that there are no dogs prowling around to devour our soul and remove our joy from Christ and start adding works to salvation. He gives us His Holy Spirit to be attentive, beware. That's what Christianity is. And we will continue next Lord's Day as Paul continues to develop this beautiful, this beautiful theme of Christ alone. What, is to be, what does it mean to be a Christian? To be part of His church. One who serves by the Spirit. One who glories, who boasts in Christ and puts no confidence in the flesh. And that's what He's going to show in the next verses. Oh, if there is anyone here who can put confidence in the flesh, that's me. And yet, I consider the ass loss. Father, we thank You. We thank for Your love and Your care towards us. Thank for Your faithfulness. In forgiving, in providing, in changing, in transforming us. Lord, for those who are here and they are outside your gates as filthy mongrels, as filthy dogs, eating garbage, we pray for your grace and your mercy. The mighty, the mighty grace, the all-conquering grace that would come and captivate them and bring them into your home and make them priests. Wash them in the blood of Jesus, we pray. Save the lost. Transform them from dogs into priests. We cannot do that. It's all by your might and your power. And we give you all the glory. 
We bless your name. Because only from you that all, all the blessings flow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.